You guys can have a seat. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, worship team, for leading us this morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you've chosen to be here with us, either in person or uh, gathering online. We're glad to have each and every one of you. I know as I was kind of walking through uh, the, the halls this morning on campus here, and sometimes the mask makes it difficult, but uh, I think I, I saw several faces that I didn't recognize. And so if you're one of those newer faces and I haven't met you uh, yet, uh, welcome. I'm glad that you're here and so glad you've chosen to join us. And if you're a first-time guest online, uh, the same to you as well. Well, the, the calendar flipped, of course, right, to, to 2021. And, um, you know, I, I, I think for, for all of us, uh, in the, whatever the level of, of difficulty we, have may, we may have faced in 2020, uh, even though it's somewhat of an artificial new thing, right? When the new year came, I think that there was a sense of maybe things will begin to, to, to be different. And, and of course, I know, you know, that, uh, that all of us recognize we had a very difficult week uh, in our country, a uh, very difficult week. And sometimes I, I weigh the gravity of these things as I stand before you on a, on a weekly basis and even more often than that, than that and interact with you. And sometimes I feel like I wish I had a the ability to contextualize all these things with the wisdom of Solomon and to, and to, get, and to say something that would be so profound that it would allow you to, to have a, 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 a perspective that, that makes sense. And, and, and I, I feel the kind of the, the frustration of that. I oftentimes go back to one of my favorite prayers in all the Bible, and if you've been around Calvary, you know that this is one of my favorite prayers, and it's found in Second Chronicles 20, and there was a king whose name was Jehoshaphat, and his country was facing enemies from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, and as he led Israel, he recognized the incredible uh, task that, that, that faced him and that there was no way that there was going to be any, <laughs> there's going to be no way that, that his army could somehow be victorious over that army. And the last words, the last sentence of his prayer that you can find in Second Chronicles 20 is, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Anybody else feel that way a little bit at times? We don't know what to do, but our eyes need to be on the one who does. Christ literally is our hope in life and in death. And I, I don't say that. I don't want you to hear that as some kind of cliche or like you've said, heard me say before. I'm not, I'm not here to give you that pastor speak stuff, right? Those little motivational, motivational phrases that, that, that oftentimes fall very short in, in, in real life. But I do absolutely believe that in all times, at all times, whether they be good or bad or somewhere in between, Christ, literally, Jesus is our only hope. And so we need to lean more deeply into what it means for us to be his followers, to be his people, to live in authentic and genuine community and love with one another, to be witnesses in salt and light in the world of grace and truth and compassion and love to bring the voice of God to a culture that so desperately needs to hear the hope that is found in Jesus and I would suggest to you what scripture teaches that is in him alone. And so as we, as we walk through times that are very, are, are very dividing, as we walk through times that are very frustrating, as we walk through times that are very sad, there's loss of life in our capital this week, this week right? As we walk through these times together, may we walk through them rooted in the truth that Jesus is our only hope. Amen?
Before we go into our uh, passage that we're going to look at today in the Gospel of John, would you bow your heads with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of life that's found in your Son and in him alone. Many of us, Lord, in this room today and watching online, have, you, you've awakened us, you've revealed to us that truth, and we have received it by faith. We walk, Lord, in the newness of life as a result of your grace. We walk as new creations. We walk as your daughters and your sons. And we pray, Lord, in a time in our world and specifically our country where we need to even more fully recognize and understand and appropriate what it means to be the sons and daughters of God, what it means to be the followers of Jesus, what it means to be your people. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would keep us in close and genuine and authentic and honest community with one another. We pray that you would keep us, Lord, in close connection to your word. And may we walk in the strength of your spirit as we go through these times together. And now, God, we pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that uh, we wouldn't just have some more information at the end of our time together today, but that you will have transformed us again by the truth of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We yield our time to you, God, in Jesus' name. And collectively we say, amen and amen. I've uh, shared with you as we've been working through the first five or six chapters of John, oftentimes that we have, have seen, right, some, some, uh, some dramatic demonstrations of the power of God, correct? We've seen Jesus take water that was in some ceremonial wash jars in chapter 2 as he was at a, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and he changed that water into wine, right? And that was what uh, we, was identified by John in chapter 2, verse 11, as the first of his signs. He did this in Cana of Galilee, and he revealed his glory, and his, his desi- disciples believed in him. It, it started to begin them on their journey of faith and, and take them to that place where they would, would come to understand who he truly was. I shared with you on multiple occasions, especially during, as we worked our way for, through those first few chapters, that John is all about these things known as signs. The, this miracle that, that Jesus did in, in Cana of Galilee was the first of what seems to be seven signs that are recorded by John. And these signs are, are, there's a particular word that's used for them, and it's, it's something known as, uh, as, an, as an indication or a token. It's a, it's a Greek word, simeon. It means this, this mark, this token, this sign. It's something by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others and is known. And what John is doing is, is John is, is trying to help his readers understand that Jesus is the Son of God that he is divine, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He says so in so many words in John chapter 20, verse 31. When at the end, after Jesus had, had been raised to new life and when he had, had appeared to Thomas, at the end of that discussion, John says in verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs, same word here that, I, that we just looked at, many other miraculous signs in the presence of his, of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, the ones that I have recorded, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's agenda for his book. 
His, his book is that he would, everything would point people toward this truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that by believing in that, you would have life. And so the first of those seven signs that we've already looked at was the one of changing the water into wine. We move forward a, a couple of chapters, and in chapter 4 we see that Jesus is back in Cana. And there, that this time when he's there, a royal official comes to him from Capernaum and says, my, my, my little lad, my son, my little guy, my little boy, a, a real term of endearment. He, he's, he's about to die, and he begs Jesus to come down. And Jesus says, you know, man, it's a, you know, unless you guys see these signs, these, these simeons, you're not going to believe, which ironically is exactly what these signs are trying to drive people toward to believe that Jesus is the one. And the, 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 the father, because of his desperation, is persistent with Jesus and says, just, just come down before my little guy dies, you know. And Jesus doesn't come, but he tells him to go, in fact, that his son would live. And that's the second of those signs that we see. And we flip over into chapter 5 when we spend a great deal of time talking about the healing and the fallout from the healing of the man who was at this pool called Bethesda in Jerusalem. And he had laid there paralyzed for 38 years, and there were many people there, and Jesus told him to get up, to pick up his mat and walk, and that created all sorts of controversy between Jesus and his opponents, and there's lots in chapter 5 about all of the fallout of that and how Jesus is again trying to drive them to help them to understand that who he is, that he has equality with the Father in who he is and what he can do in the honor that should be given him and so forth. And then last week, we flipped again uh, sometime later, and we probably traversed about a half a year in the life of Jesus when we went from chap- end of chapter 5 to beginning of chapter 6. And we saw that then sometime after, the, uh, after that, Jesus n- now finds himself in, in a place where he's gathered with a lot of people, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000. The Bible says there's 5,000 men, so many scholars estimate about a, a crowd of about 20,000 people. And they had been there, and Jesus was healing, and he was teaching. It's one of the, uh, the, one of the uh, stories that, uh, in, in the gospel that's found in all, fa- all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the end of this time, the, the disciples come to Jesus, and they're saying, in, in some of the accounts, they come to Jesus, and they say, hey, uh, you know, it's getting late. Uh, maybe we should send these people away. Because we don't, we don't have enough to, to, to feed them. In, in those accounts, Jesus says, you give something to eat. And in, the John's, in John's account, Jesus took the initiative and says to them, hey, hey what, how are we gonna, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed these people? And of course, they're, they're like, man, there, there's no way we can feed this many people. And remember what we, what we talked about. How, and, and isn't it ironic that we're talking more in that same vein this week as we think about when we look at our problems, when we look out and we see the needs and the problems and the, and the desperation, and how are we going to fix all of that? And we, we have a sense of, of, of very little resources. But what did we learn last week as we, as we saw this sign that Jesus did? We saw that a little is a lot in the hands of Jesus Verse 11 from last week's passage in John chapter 6 says, Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving them, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. A couple of parallel passages say they ate till they were satisfied, till they were full. And remember, the disciples said, we don't have enough money. Even if we had, you know, half a year's salary for a day laborer, we wouldn't be able to give everyone even a bite. And instead, what Jesus did is he gave everyone more than what they wanted, and there was stuff left over, and he picked up the basketfuls of leftovers. So we've seen those signs, and we're going to come to sign number five today. 
At the end of last week's, of the, at the passage we looked at last week, Jesus, of course, we saw, knew that the people planned to come and take him by force and make him their king. And so he left and he went in to the hills alone. And that's kind of where we pick up the story today. If you are following along in your, in your Bible or on your Bible app, um, you, can, you can have John chapter 6, verses, we're going to begin in, in verse 16, but you can also um, have Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 14. We're going to kind of bounce into some of those passages because they give us a little bit more detail about some of the, uh, about some of the stuff that's happening in the, in the story we're going to encounter today. Uh, this uh, this, this uh, miracle that we're going to look at today, this sign, this event is recorded in, in Matthew, in Mark, not in Luke, but, uh, but in John. And sometimes it, it, it could easily get confused with another kind of uh, in-the-boat miracle that Jesus did where he was asleep in the boat, and some of you remember that story, and that's, that happened, uh, it seems to be probably months earlier in the life of Jesus, so that's not the story, but we're going to see a different story. But as we get started and before we, before we kind of get into where he was at in terms of his connection with these guys who were found themselves in a very difficult situation on a stormy lake, we see that Jesus, in what we see in verse 15, he establishes something in his life that's a priority. It's a rhythm, and it's something that Jesus has that he would do often. We learn from Luke 5, 16, that what Jesus did in John 6, 15, where he went into the hills alone, he would often do. In, verse, in, in Luke 5, 16, we learn Jesus would often go to some place where he could be alone and pray. Some English translations call that place a, a desolate place. It's a place kind of like away from everyone else. It was just a place for him to connect with his father. This was such a huge priority in the ministry of Jesus. He often did it, and Luke makes, makes note of that so that we understand that that was something that Jesus found very essential. And I think for all of us in ministry, whether we serve as a, as a, as a leader in a church or whether we serve in a volunteer capacity, whatever we do, we need to understand that all that we do in whatever way that we minister, we minister only out of the overflow that we are filled up first with, with the presence and person of God himself. So God, Jesus understood that the necessity for him to stay in constant communion with his Father. And so this ministry priority comes out even as we get started into our passage that we find here in John chapter 6. I'm going to read the first three verses of our passage if you're following along. John 6, we're going to, you're going to look at verses 16 through 18. So follow along. They're going to be on the screen as well, uh, those three verses as I read them. It says, and remember, Jesus has been in the hills alone. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. You should know that a uh, little bit of ge geographical stuff that's going on here on the Sea of Galilee, it's not, it's not a big sea. But due to the mountains between the, the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, there would, we had these warm winds and, and, and sea storms would often blow off the Mediterranean and, and, and collide with the cool winds that were over the Sea of Galilee. The mountains also kind of obstructed any view of these storms until they were kind of like right on top of you on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, maybe better said, you could better termed Galilee Lake would probably be a better way to, to say it. This made it very dangerous to be in the middle of, the, of this lake, even though it isn't very large. It isn't very big. So, uh, Galilee Lake isn't very big, but rough storms 
could in fact cause even the most knowledgeable sailors and some, uh, the, some of the people who are on this boat who are disciples of Jesus are very knowledgeable sailors. It would cause them uh, to, to capsize. There, would, there, were, there were accidents. There were drownings. And so it makes what we're going to see and the reaction of the disciples something that would have been uh, natural because they would have heard about and probably experienced those things. And we know that they had experienced uh, a similar storm just a few months earlier when Jesus found himself asleep on the boat. And they were so concerned as to why he was sleeping. And they, in fact, thought they were going to die. So there's, it's in the middle of the night. They're, they're probably... Uh, had, had been out probably about halfway from what we're going to learn in a second. And of course, because of that, they find themselves, as the sea began to churn, they find themselves in great turmoil. In, that, in one of those parallel passages in Matthew 14, it says they were being battered by the waves. Ironically, and I love how God does this, in, in, a, in one of the other parallel passages in Mark 6, you see this, they are being battered by the waves, and here in Mark 6, we see that, that Jesus saw that his disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. It's interesting to me that that is the very same word that's used in both passages, but it's being used kind of in a different context. In the first thing, it's saying they're being battered by the waves, and then in the second, it's talking about what they're trying to do when they're straining at the oars. It's the, it's the Greek word, basanizo. Oh, sorry, sorry I, I flipped the S in the end. Basanizo. It means to torture. So kind of like what Matthew is saying is they're being tortured by the waves, and Mark is saying they're being tortured as they're straining against it. It's used in both of those ways. It, it means to question by applying torture. It means to vex someone with grievous pains of body or mind or to torment them, to be harassed and distressed. So these guys find themselves in a very, very difficult situation. In our passage, it says this, and, 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 the, and they're, they're afraid of what's going on. In our passage in verse 19, it says, after they had rowed for about three or four miles. Now, in the ancient fishing boats, of course, it would have been equipped with a sail, but the sail, because of the winds, would have been counterproductive, and so they're rowing. They're about three or four miles out, which means they're, they're probably about halfway across where they needed to go. So it's one of those places where that's not going to help us to go back, right? So we're kind of stuck right here in the middle. So after they had rowed about three or four miles, then all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. They're afraid for multiple reasons, right? They're afraid because of the storm. They're afraid because they think they might drown. They're probably wondering where in the world Jesus is. And as, in fact, as he's walking to them, they're afraid because they have this misunderstanding. Again, one of the details that the parallel passage uh, shows us is that when his followers saw him walking on the water, they were afraid and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They're afraid because not only are they facing the sea, but as they see this person walking on the water toward them, they're thinking maybe, maybe it's some sort of apparition. And so it shows you kind of where they're out at in their spiritual growth and development, right? They're thinking that this might be some sort of spiritual ghost-type being that's coming to them, and I'm sure that's not going to make this situation any better. <laughs> so they're terrified. They're afraid. Their, 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 their leader's not there, their master's not there, their rabbi's not there, their teacher's not there. They're out in the middle of this lake. The winds are churning. It's torturous, right? The winds are so bad, they're being tormented, and it feels like torture. Can you imagine, right? Their bys and tries and their chest is probably burning as they're trying to row against all this stuff. 
They are just in an incredible pain and they're afraid. This is such an incredibly accurate picture. It, this happened. This is, this is not, we don't want to allegorize this to the point that that's the only, uh, that, and make that the only point about it. This is an actual event happened, that happened to real people. But it also kind of is a picture, right, of humanity. We're in pain. We're tormented. We're vexed. We're harassed. And as we work against it, we even feel more pain. And we're afraid. And sometimes we feel like we're alone, right? And the answer is out there. And how many people in the world, as Jesus is approaching them, have a misconception about who he is? They think, it's a ghost. <laughs> it's even gotten worse. What's going to happen now? I think I'd rather drown by, die by drowning than have some spirit come and take me. I don't know which would be worse or better. But they're not thinking right, right? They're worn out, they're struggling, they're afraid. And in the midst of that, we have the voice of God. We have the voice of Jesus. He said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. The most accurate translation of that phrase, it is I, and some of you might know this is, I am. I am. I am has such historical significance in the life of Israel, in the life of a Jewish person. For Jesus to say, I am, it's another way in which he's saying, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the great I am. When Moses was <laughs> challenged by God to be the deliverer of his people from the nation of Egypt where they were held in bondage, and he said, by the way, when people ask me, who sent me? What am I supposed to tell them? And in that moment, God says, tell them I am sent you. And again, it, the phrase can be translated, it is I. It's not, it's not that that's a bad translation. It could be, I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I am. All of those are, are, are accurate translations. And, and it again, is, it is a way in which a self-description of the divine, of God himself and Jesus, I think, again, comes to us in the same way that he came to those people who were in pain and fear on the boat. And he says, I am. I am your hope. I am your life. I am the only thing that should give you hope in this moment. But one of those guys, you know who he is. He's not in our passage, but Peter says, all right. And I don't quite understand why Peter did this exactly. I'm not sure I understand. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, ask me to step out onto the water. And in my mind, I'm thinking, Peter, if it was someone other than the Lord, and they don't care about you, and they think you're going to drown because you step out of the boat, well, they would have said, get out of the boat too, wouldn't they? I don't quite understand Peter's question, but Peter oftentimes thinks, or I should say speaks, like me oftentimes, way before he thinks, he manages to get both feet in his mouth at times and sometimes a fist or two in there with it. And he says, hey, ask me to come out to you. And so the Lord says, come on, right? He asks him, he says, come on out. And so Peter gets out of the boat. He actually begins to, I don't know how far he got, 
I don't know how far Jesus is away. At least they're, he's close enough they're at least recognizing a figure of something, right? And so as he's walking toward Jesus, the Bible says that in verse 30 of Matthew 14, and that's where we find this detail in that parallel passage, but seeing the wind, right, looking around, taking his eyes off the one, off the great I am, seeing the wind, he became frightened, afraid. And when he began to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And again, so much of this story, again, an actual real-life historical event that took place is such a picture of everything in our life, right? Lord, save me. I need you. I hear you. I need you. I don't know. I'm afraid. I doubt. I have struggles. I have pain. I'm a sinner. I, I'm so misguided sometimes. I, I don't quite know what to do or how to live or how to act. And sometimes God is just looking for the humility of someone who in desperation repeats those words of Peter when he said, Lord, save me. And his voice becomes one of presence. Right? He doesn't just speak it, but he touches us. He reached out and he grabs Peter's arm, grabs his hand, grabs him, is what scripture says. You have so little faith, Jesus said. I think there was probably a little chuckle in his voice. In my way of understanding, I think maybe Jesus was chuckling to himself a little bit. Why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt I am? How could you doubt that? And of course, how many would have done the very same thing, right? Stepped out and seen the waves, seen the wind, and thought, what in the heck did I get out of the boat for? Jesus continues to provide his presence to us. He wants us to understand that it is only in his presence that we can have peace, that we can be free of anxiety, that we can have hope, that we can have life, we can have security. So John doesn't have that detail in his, you know, again, I told you we're looking at some of those parallel passages, but in in the John story, after after Jesus says, it is I, I am, it says in verse 21, then they were willing to take him on board. So they bring him on board, again, his presence. And then in the midst of that, as, as Jesus gets on board, not only what happens in John, but what happens in the parallel passages also then show us his power. So we hear his voice, we experience his presence, and now we experience his power. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. Just like the other event when he was asleep on, asleep, right, asleep on that mat, and you, you remember that passage, and they thought they were going to drown, and he gets up and he speaks to the wind and the waves, and they're like, who is this guy? It's that, how does wind obey someone? How do waves stop when someone tells it to stop? That doesn't make sense to us. In the same way, as soon as he steps into the boat, the wind stops. Parallel passage from Matthew says that same thing. When he gets into the boat, when he climbs into the boat, the wind stops. And, and John gives us another aspect of something that shows the power of God. It says in verse 21, as we figure that, or finish that, I'm sorry, then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they, where they were heading. So as one scholar points out, we have a, a two-for-one miracle here. 
If you, if you take these and you harmonize the accounts from Matthew, Mark, and John, as Jesus steps into the boat, immediately the wind stops and immediately the boat moves several miles to the shore. Immediately. Now, <laughs> I don't know how you would have felt if you were in the boat. But I would imagine that just like the disciples, there would have been a little bit of awe, right? He steps in the boat. The wind and waves die down, and all of a sudden, you've just moved several miles to the shore. In fact, I would say it's not, it, I don't think it's just a two-for-one miracle. It's a three-for-one miracle, right, in this sign that happens. Jesus is walking on the water. The wind stops as soon as he gets in the boat, and instantaneously, the boat is transported. It's kind of like when all of us, you know, and we're gonna, at, at the end of Jesus' life, after he had been killed and raised to new life and in his resurrected form, right, we saw how he would just appear in places, right, and through locked doors. He wouldn't, like, open, they wouldn't open the door and let him in. He would just appear, and that's what's happening here. So we kind of have a, a three-for-one miracle. We have the immediate cessation of the wind. We have the immediate arrival of the boat at, at, at its destination, and we also have already seen the walking of Jesus on the water. The disciples in Mark's account says, it says they were utterly astounded. In the New King, in New King James, it's such a, the, when you look at the grammatical structure of, of this phrasing in, the, in this sentence, it such, has such emphatic language, and it doesn't come out great in the, in the translation I used, but I knew that we would understand what the, what the phrase utterly astounded would mean. But in the New King, King James Version, it says this, and it kind of represents a little bit better. It says, they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Do you remember when the shepherds uh, had that angelic appearance uh, announcing the, the birth of Jesus? When they experienced that, and the, and the old King James Version says they were sore amazed, right? And growing up as a kid, you probably thought somebody didn't know how to say so, so they said sore but they were sore amazed. It's, a, it's like an old-timey way of, of saying their, their amazement was, it was incredible. And that's the same kind of thing. King James uses that same phrase here for the disciples in the boat. They, the one, one translation, the Amplified Bible, says they were admonished exceedingly beyond measure. The Phillips version says it this way, and we can kind of understand this. They were scared out of their wits. I mean, this is... <laughs> we're rowing... We're, we're just about ready to die. We're probably going to drown. All of a sudden, we see something, think it's a ghost. We're afraid. We're like, don't know what's going on. Peter stepped out of the boat. Then he starts to go down. The guy gets in the boat with us. The wind stops. We move instantaneously. What that must experience must have been like for them. They're like, what is going on? And I think it's just like, Jesus is. That's what I am, because I am. In Matthew's account, those who were in the boat worshiped Jesus, saying, you are truly God's son. Best way maybe to translate that phrase is, is this acknowledgement that Jesus is to be such a person as the son of God. The, the definite article, the, is missing in the original Greek text. That's why I chose the New American Standard uh, translation here. Some have suggested that, that it's, they're not at this point yet in their understanding of this unique person of Jesus. Later they will confess him as the son of the living God. 
And they're not probably at that point here, but they're, they're, the phrase is more, you appear to be one who could possibly be God's son. So they're growing in their understanding of who Jesus is, of who this unique person is who's able to change water into wine, who's able to heal someone who's been an invalid for 38 years, who's able to multiply five and two into enough to feed 20,000, and now is able to step into a boat and have everything be calm and instantaneously transport us to the shore of safety. What did I say the Gospel of John was all about? The Gospel of John was all about recording these signs so that you would know that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and in believing in that, that you would have life. I believe the same I am who provided his voice, presence, and power to those first followers is here to provide those same things to us. Do we hear his voice of truth? Do we experience his presence of love? And are we living in the power of his transformation? the new life that he wants to give to us. Because ultimately, just as Matthew records, he wants us to fall down in worship and acknowledgement of that truth that he is the I am. As that passage kind of wraps up in verses 22 to 24, we're going to kind of use those verses as a springboard as we get into next week in the reaction and the search for Jesus that's happening after all of these things and the miracles that he performed, especially the feeding of the 5,000. But as I leave you today, I want to encourage each of us, all of us, to have that same level of confession, of that same level of understanding that was beginning to germinate in the minds and hearts of his first followers. You are truly God's son. In a place of pain and in a place of fear, God comes to bring us that very truth. And I pray that as he brings that to us today, that you're hearing his voice and that you're yielding yourself over to him in complete and total abandon. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, misunderstanding, doubt, fear, pain, tragedy, and turmoil, they're all a very, very real part of our life. And in many ways, Lord, we, we do it to ourselves because we're mistaken, we're misguided, we're misinformed, we're sinners, we're broken, we need you. Thank you for being the I am 
who comes to us. Thank you for being the one who grabs us when we say, save me. Thank you for giving us your presence. For allowing us to live in intimacy with you. Thank you for filling us with the power of your Holy Spirit. God, may we walk in that. May we, meet, well, may we lean more into that person, the great I am, than we do into our fear and pain and doubt and struggle. We thank you, Lord, for helping us to see you in this story in such a dramatic way and see ourselves as well. Change us, Lord. We pray for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen.